On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. We get in back into Ephesians next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, I wanted to look at this passage of Scripture. It's something that's been on my heart and mind for a number of weeks. I, I meet with a younger man, and we're going through the book of Romans, and we recently uh, went through this passage, and, and that uh, combined with uh, the things that I've been reading and, and listening to have just really, uh, I just believe God has put this upon my heart. And I, and I will preface the study this morning uh, by saying that, that this passage contains some hard truths. And these are truths that some people find hard to accept. Uh, these are truths that are offensive to human pride. But my purpose this morning is not to come back after five weeks out of the pulpit and just blow everybody out of the water. That is not my intent. Uh, neither is that my desire. This comes from a heart of love and a heart of concern for the people of God, especially the people of God in, in this church. Because I am convinced that across this country, many people who profess Christ are not believers at all. Because they've responded to a false gospel. They're, they're, they're living a lie and they're not even aware of it. And so this is a, a critical passage of Scripture. Again, it, these are hard truths, but they're good truths because it's God's truth. It is the truth. And so may the Lord speak to each one of our hearts this morning and do the work that he desires to do in each one of us. You'll follow along as I read our text, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. But we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by posing a question to you. And it's an important question. 
And in fact, it is one of uh, the most important questions in all of life because its implications are eternal. And the question is this. Why do men need to be saved? Why is it that men need to be saved? And I'm afraid that today a great many professed Christians would answer uh, that question in this way. Men need to be saved so their sins may be forgiven, that they might enjoy a happy, fulfilled life and spend eternity in heaven. Well, those are certainly benefits of salvation. And our, our sins are forgiven in salvation. We experience true happiness, though I believe it is it is much more accurate to say we experience true joy. In fact, the Bible says speaks of joy unspeakable. And we will spend eternity in heaven. But again, those are among the benefits of salvation. So we still have not answered the question as to why men need to be saved. Why do men need to be saved? And you see, this is what is so often missing from gospel presentations today. Why do men need to be saved? Well, Paul is going to answer that question for us this morning, but the short answer to the question is this. Men need to be saved because all men are under sin, under the power of sin, enslaved to sin, all are guilty and stand condemned before the holy God of heaven, deserving of nothing but judgment and condemnation. And if a man or a woman dies in that state, they will spend eternity in hell where they will experience the eternal wrath of Almighty God. And so to say that this is an important issue is really a, quite an understatement, isn't it? I mean, this is of immense importance. I mean, eternity hangs on this. That's why I would encourage you this morning to give your utmost full attention to the teaching of God's Word. Let's look at Romans 3, 9 through 20. But before we actually get into the verses, it's important we understand the context in which Paul wrote these words. In verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, Paul stated the theme of the book of Romans which is the gospel. And he said there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is the theme of the book of Romans, and the entire rest of the book is Paul's exposition on that theme. And Paul is committed to, the, to presenting the gospel in Romans, but before he can talk about how we can be saved, he has to begin with the statement on sin and judgment. Because he must first convince us of our own lost condition before we will ever see our need for a Savior. But it would be absolutely pointless to talk about getting right with God until we realize that we are not right with God. 
I mean, the biblical order in, in any gospel presentation is always first the bad news of guilt and condemnation and then the good news of grace and mercy and salvation. You know, the warning of danger and the way of escape. So before he ever gets to the remedy, Paul must present the disease. And so like a prosecuting attorney in a court of law, Paul, from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, sets out to prove that all men are sinners, guilty before God, and therefore deserving of nothing but his wrath and judgment. And he began by making his case against all mankind by first dealing with pagans. In other words, irreligious people, people who aren't religious at all, immoral people. That's Romans 1, uh, 18 to 32. And secondly, he dealt with self-righteous religious people. You know, moralists. People who think they're, they're good enough to be accepted by God. So he deal, he's dealt secondly with the self-righteous religious moralists, Jew and Gentile alike, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And then in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul zeroed in specifically on the Jews, God's covenant people. And then following that, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Paul refuted the objections that he knew the Jews would certainly have to his arguments. And so at this point in Romans chapter 3, all arguments have now been silenced by Paul. In proving his case, Paul has included absolutely everyone. No one has escaped. He has brought all men before the court of God's justice, so to speak, and presented overwhelming evidence that all of mankind, all of us are guilty and stand condemned as sinners before God. And so like a masterful, skilled prosecutor, Paul has destroyed all of man's false securities, all of man's convenient hiding places, all of our excuses, all of our arguments. He has ripped the covers off, so to speak, and left us all standing naked and condemned before the bar of God's justice. And now in the verses we're looking at this morning, this is Paul's final summary. This is Paul at the peak of his argument, summarizing everything he said from chapter 1, verse 18, up to this point, so that he may leave the whole world standing before the judgment bar of God, trembling and silent. So the picture here is that of a trial. The procedure is judicial. The language is that of a trial. So picture a courtroom, if you will. Paul is the prosecutor. All of mankind uh, is the defendant or the defendants. And sitting on, on, on the judgment seat is God himself. And in verse 9, Paul presents the charge. In verses 10 to 18, Paul gives a string of Old Testament quotes that amount to a 14-count indictment in terms of the very word of God himself. We hear a lot about indictments today with, with famous people. Well, this is God for, God's 14-count indictment against all of mankind. And what we have in, in verses 10 through 18 is God's view of unconverted man. And then in verses 19 to 20, we have the verdict. And so we have the charge, the indictments, and the verdict. So let's look now at verse 9 in the charge. 
We read, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul is summing up all that he said about the pagan, the moralist, and the Jew. He's condemned all of them. And now he says, what then? In other words, what is the conclusion to all of this? What is the conclusion to the matter? Are we Jews any better off? I mean, to the question of whether there was any advantage to being a Jew, in, in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul said, yes, there was great advantage. I mean, to them were given the, the law and the covenants. There was great advantage to being a Jew, but that didn't equate to salvation. Just like there is great advantage for, for those who have been born into a Christian home with Christian parents who have been brought up in church and, and the Christian way of life, but those things do not equate to salvation. But now to the question as to whether Jews are better off than Gentiles when it comes to needing salvation, Paul answers, no. No, not at all. Not at all. Oh. The reason? Look back at verse 9. For we have already charged that, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Jews are no better off than Gentiles. Because Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. They both are in need of God's mercy and grace. You see, the point that he is making is that by nature, by nature, the Jewish person is no more right with God than the pagan or the moralist. Again, Paul has demonstrated that they are all under sin and therefore all under condemnation. All, Paul says, are under sin. And the word under is a very common Greek term. It means to be in the power of, under the dominion of, or under the control of. And so Paul states here that all human beings, every single person, bar none, are under the power of sin, the control of sin, the dominion of sin. They, they are all enslaved to sin. And that all is an all-inclusive all. Everybody, there is no one outside of this. No one. All are under sin. And it's important to notice how Paul puts this problem. You'll notice he does not say that all people commit sins as if doing things contrary to God's will is just an occasional problem. He does not even say that all people are sinners, though that, of course, uh, is in fact true. What he says is that all people are under sin. Paul is using language that speaks to a situation of domination, you know, of, of slavery. You see, the problem is not that people commit sins or even that they are in the habit of committing sin. The problem, the great problem, is that people are helpless prisoners of sin. And Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3.22, but the Scripture declares that the whole Word of God or that, the, excuse me, that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
So the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. And of course, we know that to be true because by nature, all men are addicted to sin. They're they're imprisoned under sin's power and unable to free themselves by anything that they can do. Well, certainly they they may be able to stop committing some outward sins, but they, they can never change their sinful nature. I mean, this is an extremely point because our understanding of someone's problem dictates the answer to that problem. I mean, this point is vital if we're to appreciate the need and power of the gospel. Because if people were simply sinners, then perhaps all they would need is a teacher to instruct them about what is right. But people are under sin, Paul said. They're, they're imprisoned by it, enslaved to it. And so knowing this, God has sent to us not a teacher, but a liberator. One who has the power to set us free from our sins, and of course, that liberator is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we begin to see the people uh, all around us at work, in our neighborhoods, at the store, as, as helpless captives of sin, then we will be better motivated to help them find the true liberator who alone can rescue them and set them free from their captivity. Only Christ, only Christ proclaimed in the gospel can break through the walls of the sin that imprisons people. And apart from Christ, all men are under the power, control, and dominion of sin and Satan. And you know, the truth is, it is very hard for people to accept this particularly religious people who somehow have gotten the idea that they're redeemed because they're better than everybody else. But if you'll remember in the, New, in, in the Gospels, it was to the religious people that Jesus had the harshest words of rebuke. Because they didn't see themselves as sinners. They thought they were good enough and acceptable to them. But Paul says we've already charged that all Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, pagans, moralists, and religious people, all are under sin, all of us. Because as the Apostle John said, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And so whether they admit it or not, I mean, all men are under sin. That's the charge. And so the entire human race comes to the judgment bar, the court of the holy God, all are charged with being under the power and the control of sin. And so they stand guilty and condemned before God. And what we have in in Paul's statement in verse 9 and now in verses 10 to 18 is the most explicit description of the total depravity of mankind in all of Scripture. And people have different ideas about total depravity. You know, what does that even mean? Well, total depravity means simply this, that sin affects every aspect of our human existence. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are all infected by sin. So every dimension of our personality suffers at some point from the weight of sin that has infected the entire human race. Total depravity does not mean that every human being is as wicked 
uh, as it is possible to be. I mean, that, I, that idea is ridiculous and untrue, and it's contradicted by what we see every day around us, because all human beings are not drunks, all human beings are not felons, adulterers, murderers, etc. There are differences in the degree to which people sin, and a person can always sin more often and more seriously than they do presently. A total depravity refers to the extent of our sinful corruption, not to its degree. And so total depravity means simply that every area of human life has been tainted and corrupted by sin. And who would argue with that? As J.I. Packer said, on the one hand, no one is as bad as he or she might be. While on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. So after the charge in verse 9, now in verses 10 to 18, Paul presents his 14-count indictment against fallen mankind. And the indictment is very specific. Notice Paul begins by saying in verse 10, as it is written, as it is written, I mean, that's, that's a familiar phrase, isn't it? It was used uh, when quoting the Old Testament. In fact, both Jesus and Satan used that phrase to introduce quotations from the Old Testament during our Lord's temptation in the wilderness. And Paul's use of the phrase tells us that he's getting his indictment from the Scriptures. This isn't just something Paul came up with on his own. He didn't just make this up. He's getting the indictment from the Scriptures, and that's exactly what we have from verses 10 to 18, a series of Old Testament quotes that tell us the truth about man. So this is God's true word on man's sin. This is God's view of man. One man said, this is one of the most radical and extensive indictments of the corruption of man ever to appear in print. Wisby calls this this passage an x-ray study of the lost sinner from head to foot. And so here is God's verdict upon all men, all men and women, including every one of us. And as we look at this 14-part indictment, we'll see that it divides into three areas, man's character, his speech, and his conduct. And we start with man's character because that essentially is the problem. Man is rotten at the core. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil. He has an evil, unbelieving heart. He's a sinner by nature and by practice. And the Bible indicates to us that man's heart is corrupt. His inner being is sinful and filthy, and so out of his character comes what he says and what he does. Count number one. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's right out of Psalm 14. None is righteous, not one. And because somebody would, would always say, except for me, that's why he adds that, no, not one. There is none righteous, not one, God says. God's standard of righteousness for men is absolute sinless perfection. So does anyone here this morning want to claim that they're righteous on their own? 
God's standard of righteousness for men is absolute sinless perfection. It's the perfect righteousness he himself possesses, which was manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, a person who is not as perfect as God in every single way is not acceptable to God. And none of us, no one comes even remotely close to that. There are no levels of righteousness as far as salvation is concerned. There is either the perfect, right, or perfect righteousness in Christ or total sinfulness apart from Christ. And certainly among unbelievers, there are those who are better than others because there is a certain amount of relative human goodness and morality. But in the end, God's standard is far beyond anyone, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By nature, apart from saving grace, we're unrighteous. Apart from God's mighty grace, we're hopelessly corrupt. And the best man, the noblest, the most educated, the most philanthropic, the, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, there has never been one person except Christ who can stand up to God's standard of perfect righteousness. Because when you drop that plumb line, there is no one who is true to it. By God's divine standard, which is the only standard that counts, there are none righteous. No, not one. All are under sin, just as Paul charged in verse 9. Count number 2. No one understands. You see in verse 11, no one understands. People are not only universally evil, but also spiritually ignorant. I mean, people have the ability to see God's majesty and power in creation through general revelation so that they are without excuse, but they have no innate spiritual capacity to know and to understand God. And that is why Paul could say, and in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person or the unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And of course, the unsaved man lacks any kind of spiritual discernment. Man's lack of righteousness affects his understanding because if he's not righteous, he doesn't have the capacity to understand. His, his mind is infected by sin and unrighteousness. And in Ephesians 4.18, Paul points out that man's spiritual ignorance is due to his innate sinful nature that doesn't want to know and understand, much less obey and serve God. Paul said unsaved people are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And we learn from Romans 1 that men know that there is a God through general revelation. That's not a knowledge that saves, but enough to condemn them because they know there is a God. But even though they know there is a God, Paul said they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and the foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools, and then we know from the rest of that passage, then they turned to idolatry. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Man is utterly insensitive. He has no perception of God's truth. His mind is darkened. He is hopelessly blinded to the truth about God but he doesn't know that. And that is why Paul said in, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 7, they're always learning. 
always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They can always be learning uh, things from the Bible, theological truths, biblical truths, but they're, they're never coming to a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge that saves. Because you can pack your head full of theological knowledge, but that, that doesn't equal salvation. If it did, the scribes and the Pharisees would have been saved. There are none righteous. Not even one, and no one understands. Count number three, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. That is, no one by nature wants to know God. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that men are to seek God? But here it says, no one seeks God. Isn't that contradictory? Well, no, not at all. Well, doesn't all the religion, rituals, and practices from the beginning of time demonstrate that man seeks after God? No, not at all. Because, you see, people involved in false religion are seeking something other than the one true God. They're actually running from the true God to their own man-made system of religion, one that serves their sinful interests and desires. If man initiates the search that he doesn't seek the true God, the God of the Bible, instead he seeks an idol that he himself makes with his own hands and then bows down to it. The people who truly seek God do not seek Him on their own initiative. They can't because their minds are darkened and blinded to the truth. In reality, they're seeking other God. And if they are seeking the true God, it is only because God has taken the initiative. And Jesus put it this way in one of the most important statements I think he ever made. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You say, okay, but on what basis do they come? Well, on the basis that the Father gives them. And then he says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then Jesus said, And I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the only person who seeks God is the person who has responded positively because God is seeking that person and drawing him or drawing them to himself. I mean, the whole of Scripture from the Garden of Eden to the conclusion of the book of Revelation, describes the great God who is searching for and seeking to save that which is lost. Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save the lost. God is pursuing us while we are fugitives fleeing from Him. We see this at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. When they sinned and, and died spiritually, were separated from God, God came looking for him. Did they run to him, seeking him, pursuing him? Is that what they did? No, they turned and ran from him. They fled from him and hid from him. God is pursuing us while we are, are the fugitives fleeing from him. Men do not seek God on their own. They seek their own will and their own way. 
The man's natural inclination, as Paul said in Philippians 2.21, is to seek their own interests. No one seeks for God. No one by nature wants to know God. And this is a verse that many Christians simply do not believe. But it's right here on the pages of Scripture. You know, I often hear people speak of someone they know and and they may say of this person, boy, they're really seeking after God. Well, that is just not so. The word translated seek means to seek out. It implies a determined search. Man doesn't search for God. And what truth he knows about God, he suppresses. And finally, turns to idolatry, again, according to Romans chapter 1. And they may be seeking relief from their guilt, and they probably are. They may be seeking to assuage their, their conscience. They may be seeking peace of mind, happiness, things that Christians know only God can, can give them and do for them. And so people then will leap to the conclusion that since this person uh, is searching for these things, that they're searching for God. But in reality, they're only searching for the benefits of God while fleeing from the very person of God. They don't want anything to do with God. They just want some relief, some peace of mind, a quiet conscience. The only time a person seeks after God is when the Holy Spirit is truly working in their heart, drawing them to Christ. That, that is an authentic seeking. So we deceive ourselves into thinking that man on his own really does seek after God. He does not. You say, well, how do you know? Well, the Bible says so right here. No one seeks for God. Well, it can't mean that. Well, it's exactly what it means exactly what it says. Count number four. All have turned aside. Turned aside has the basic meaning of leaning in the wrong direction. In the military context, it referred to soldiers running the wrong way. In other words, deserting at a time of battle. So Paul says they have all turned aside. They're all leaning in the wrong direction. They're, they're, all, they're, 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 all, they're all running in the wrong direction, just like Adam and Eve. Man has deserted the way of God. That's exactly what the prophet Isaiah said. All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We have turned everyone to God's way. Is that what it said? No, it says, we have turned everyone to his own way. We have all gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. All men have turned aside. The natural man doesn't follow the straight and narrow path that leads to God. He's moving all over the place as he tries to flee from the very presence of God. The natural man's basic pattern of, of living is characterized in Proverbs 8.13, as the evil way. And in Proverbs 14.12, as the way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
There are a lot of people on the way that seems right to them. The way that they have imagined God has placed them on. But it's not the narrow way, it's the broad way that leads to destruction. Men don't follow God's path. They've all turned aside aside or gone out of the way. And would you tell them they're on the wrong path? And would you tell them they're going the wrong way? Well, they are greatly offended. Because you see, they live under the, the deadly delusion that, that they're okay. People are by nature proud and arrogant and choose their own way rather than the way of God. And so man is not righteous. He has no spiritual understanding. He does not seek God, and he has gone his own way. And that brings us to the fifth indictment, and this is taking much longer than I had anticipated. And we're never going to get through this unless we plan on staying here and having dinner together. So we're going to stop right there and pick it up here next week, Lord willing. I had intended to do all of this today, but not going to make it. So what should we do in conclusion, I mean, how, how should we respond to uh, just the, the five devastating indictments of universal sin and guilt that we've seen so far? How are we supposed to respond to them? Well, we sure should not try to evade it by changing the subject and talking instead of the need for self-esteem or by blaming our behavior on our genes, you know, our DNA or our parents or our upbringing or education or lack thereof or uh, our society, our environment. You know, how, however much way we've been affected by negative influences, we're not their helpless victims. Rather, we each and every one are responsible before God for our conduct. When you stand before God, you're not going to be able to say, well, you know what, my parents did this, or my parents did that, or this person did this, or it doesn't matter. You will be held accountable for your own conduct. There will be no excuses on that day. We will all stand before God, and perhaps they'll read the indictment indictments and will be found guilty as charged. And so our first response to Paul's indictment should be to make certain that we ourselves have accepted what God has said about our human condition as true and that we, each one, have personally fled to the only refuge there is and that is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins because we have no merit whatsoever to plead and we have no excuse to make. 
It is only when men stand before God, humbled, broken, speechless, and condemned, that they're going to be ready to hear the words of verse 21 as Paul explains how God has intervened through Christ at his cross for our salvation. And so just the, the closing seconds of our time together this morning, I want you to look into your own heart. And I want you to ask yourself a very simple question. You know, have I really trusted in Christ alone for salvation? Or am I trusting in my goodness? Am I trusting in all the good things I've done and all the bad things I haven't done? What are you trusting in? Will I pray to prayer? I don't drink. I don't cuss. I got baptized. Even have a Bible and show up at church on occasion. Hell is going to be filled with people like that because not one of those things makes a person a Christian. So you need to ask yourself, have you personally trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And if not, I want to call upon you to, to turn to God, to turn to Christ, to believe in, trust in, rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. And I encourage you this morning to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. If you don't know him, I mean personally. I'm not talking about knowing about him, and I don't care how much you know about him. If you don't know him personally, and if that's not evident in your life by walking in obedience to his word, and I don't mean just the things you want to walk in obedience to, the one who loves him, he said, is the one who keeps his commandments. This is how we know we love him. This is how we know we're his. We love him, and we keep his commandments. Not perfectly, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. So I encourage you to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. I'm, I'm encouraging you to embrace him today as the one who forgives our sins, the one who empowers us to live in obedience, thus proving the genuineness of our faith. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me By your blood we've been sent